Father, we are like children in the night, in our jobs, in our marriages, in our lives, in our relationships. We're in the dark, and we need you. Teach us about ambition today. We say, speak for your servants are listening. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. A few years ago, an American physician named Dr. Kent Brantley uh, served as a medical missionary with Samaritan's Purse Organization in Liberia. And while he was there, one of the biggest uh, Ebola outbreaks, the most deadly Ebola outbreaks happened. His family left, basically everybody left, but he decided to stay. In an article uh, from Time Magazine a couple years later, he reflected on his decision, and he said this. The morning I woke up with Ebola, I, I felt a little warm. My temperature was 100 degrees, so higher than normal, but not too concerning. Even with the bad news, though, I felt calm. I felt calm. I never shed a tear when I called my wife and said, Amber, my test for Ebola is positive. The rest of my family wept, but I felt strangely at peace. God blessed me with that peace that passes understanding. He pointed out that in his time in Liberia, they had treated only one patient who had survived. And so when this disease came upon him, he and his wife both knew the disadvantage of serving in this place. And then he writes about Ebola and what it's like to have Ebola for his patients and for himself. It's a humiliating disease, he says. It strips you of your dignity. You're removed from your family and you're put into isolation where you can't even see the faces of those caring for you because they're wearing protective suits to protect themselves against you. You've got lots of uncontrollable trips to the bathroom. It's embarrassing. You have to rely on others to clean you up. Through our protective gear, we still try to treat every patient like they were family. We spoke to them through the gear. We called them by name and we touched them we wanted these Ebola patients to know that they were valuable, that they were loved, and that we were here to serve them. Not long after news erupted in the States that Dr. Brantley had decided to go back into the fray of Ebola rather than come home where it was safe, uh, one American commentator I have to say, who a lot of Christians look up to, for some reason, said that his decision was idiotic, was idiotic. Is it idiotic to take this extremely expensive medical education, to take your role as a dad and a husband, 
to take your health and safety in the U.S. and then spend them all on dying Ebola patients, only one of whom survived. Is it idiotic? Friends, it, maybe it is. Maybe it's holy foolishness. But I'll tell you this, it is deeply, deeply Christian. Today, we learn about ambition. What does ambition mean? What is true ambition? What is Christian ambition? Jesus teaches us and his disciples about ambition in Mark's gospel chapter nine. Take your scripture passage and follow along with me as we study what does it mean to be ambitious? Jesus' disciples are trying to figure it out and he's teaching them. Here's, here's what Jesus says. Let me give it to you in a nutshell, in a sentence. True ambition, Christian ambition, though it may look like idiocy to the rest of the watching world, this kind of ambition is like God's ambition for us. The God who left heaven and earth, who made heaven and earth, and then left it and directed all of his creative, infinite power, wisdom, love, aspiration, desire to come down to earth and to lift us up to heaven with him. That is Christian ambition. This is the ambition to which Jesus calls his disciples and us in Mark 9. Three observations, very brief, on this passage. The context of Jesus' teaching about ambition, the coach of the teaching, and the content. What does it mean to be ambitious? Here we go. First observation. Notice the context. That is the place or the geography where Mark tells us Jesus does this teaching. This is a, a brief detail, but it's important. Mark gives us two in one small seven-verse passage, two geographical markers. For the nerds among you, you've already picked this up. The first place is Galilee, the top of the passage. Jesus and his disciples passed through where? Galilee. Look at, down at the next paragraph. He starts again, Mark, giving us this seemingly incidental uh, detail. And then they came to where? Capernaum. Now look. Rather than us doing like a mental map of, of uh, Jesus, the land of Jesus, here's what I want you to know. I'm just going to tell you what it means. There's something about this where Mark is switching gears, and he's telling us about Jesus' journey. Remember where Jesus' journey ends? At the cross in Jerusalem. Here's what you need to know. Chapter 9, 30 and, 30, 30 and following, Mark says, Jesus, with his disciples, is one very intentional step closer to the cross. Jesus, the king, is on a journey, not to a throne, to a cross. And he's moving very intentionally. The atmosphere is changing. One commentator imagined Jesus moving through Galilee and into Capernaum toward Jerusalem, knowing every step of the way that Judah's heart was starting to turn. And as Jesus himself says in this passage, to betray him. Notice the place, the context. Jesus doesn't stop the journey, though he, though he knows he's going to the cross. 
He's driven, he's passionate, he's purposeful. He keeps moving. One might even say that Jesus was ambitious to get to the cross for you and me. That's the context. Here's the coach, the coach of this passage. I want you to notice Jesus, who is the teacher, giving this teaching on ambition. Say, well, that's obvious, Josh, but listen, let me ask your patience as I use a sports analogy for those among us for whom sports are meaningless. Uh, if you've been following the National Football League this, this season, it's kind of fun because um, a man named John Gruden is coaching the Oakland Raiders. And what's fun about this is that John Gruden used to be a coach, but for the last number of years hasn't, hasn't been a coach. Instead, he's called the games, you know, uh, so-and-so gets the ball, takes the ball, he's to the 10, the 5, the 1, touchdown. He's that guy high above the field in the broadcasting box, commenting on the players, all of their wins and all of their losses, waxing eloquently about what the coach on the field should have been doing or shouldn't have been doing. Now, John Gruden is on the field. He's one of the coaches, and it's not going that well for them right now. <laughs> He's no longer removed from the mess of the game like a good, true coach. He's in the game in real time. He's not playing Monday morning quarterback, hindsight 2020. He's coaching his team in real time. This is Jesus in Mark's gospel. We know that because, first of all, we know he's teaching. He's coaching. Um, the second half of the story, when Jesus sits down, that's the posture that a Jewish teacher would take. He would sit down. When I think of Reggie Kidd, our beloved dean, teaching in seminary, I think, oh, Reggie would have loved to sit while his students stood, you know? That's a way to teach. How about I sit down and y'all stand? <laughs> So Jesus is teaching. We also see his teaching because he uses, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, he uses a prop. Do you know what his prop is? A child, a, a person, but, but certainly a child. He uses an object less. He takes a child, brings a child into the middle of the situation, and then grabs a hold of the child. So he's teaching. But that's not even the interesting part. The interesting part is at the top of the passage where Jesus, the teacher, doesn't just wax eloquently about what it means to be ambitious, but actually tells the story of his very own life. The coach, the coach is not in the broadcasting box anymore. He's on the field. The son of man is to be betrayed, he says, into human hands, and they'll kill him, and three days after being killed, he'll rise again. This was Jesus' own story, not some distant intellectual teaching. So like a true coach, Jesus gets on the field. Now listen, I particularly mention this point today because even a cursory study of world religions and religious history would show you that every religion talks about the importance of serving others. Every religion does. So we need to ask, as Christians this morning, what is Christian about this teaching, right? 
Everybody teaches. Gandhi says this, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Islam from the Quran says this, O people of Islam, you are the best people ever raised for the good of mankind because you've been raised to serve others. Humanism, the belief that there is no, nothing supernatural, that it's just what we can see, taste, touch, or feel, even humanism posits that the whole point of science and making good things and culture for, for humans is to raise humanity up to serve people. Everybody teaches this. Everybody does. So what's Christian? What makes it Christian is that our God, the maker of heaven and earth, came down from the broadcasting box and got on the field with the players to teach us what ambition looks like, what it looks like to give yourself for the sake of the world. He didn't just leave us a copy of the scriptures. He lived it. The Son of Man will be betrayed and be killed. St. Paul says it this way in a very familiar passage from Philippians 2. You probably know this passage. Jesus, Paul says, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our God, the Christian God, the God of the Bible in Christ was not just another great teacher, a great broadcaster seated high above the field of life. He came down from heaven onto the field and embodied his teaching. Here's the third and final observation from Mark 9. What is the meaning, the content of Jesus' teaching on ambition? What does it mean to be ambitious? It probably doesn't surprise you to learn that the content of Jesus' lesson on true ambition is different from what's taught, or I should say caught, in the world around us, right? But what might surprise you, what might surprise you, is how his teaching is different. Christian ambition, Jesus says, isn't different in its force or its effort, its drive or its strength or its energy. No, it's different in its direction, its aim, its motivation. You see the difference? Christian ambition, like any human normal ambition, is a striving, a stretching, a working, a trying harder. It's, it's lots of effort. Humans are ambitious people, as we should be. God rejoices in our ambition. So Christian ambition is not being weak and, oh, I, I have no point, I have no purpose in life. I, I'm, I'm, I'm weak. In fact, you might have even misunderstood the point of Jesus' object lesson when he pulls the child in. I read a few sermons like this. Hey, today is about Christian ambition. What does Christian ambition mean? It looks like being this weak, helpless child. No, it doesn't look like that. Jesus didn't say, look, see this child that I bring into the midst of you? Be ambitious, be weak, be little, be small, be helpless. No, Jesus says, welcome this helpless one. The difference in Christian ambition is not that it's weak, it's in its aim, its direction. That is to say, it's, Christians are not ambitious for themselves, but for others, even at the cost, like Dr. Brantley 
of their own lives. Do you see the difference? This is so important when I think about things like serving the downtown area as a church. Um, you know, we imagine a way of serving. So let's, lots of events down in this area, a couple miles away, Lake Yola, something like that. We run down there as a church. We, all, we get our tent. It says Cathedral Church of St. Luke. We have ice cold water bottles, like ice cold water bottles in Orlando, Florida, right? Gold, liquid gold. In addition to, we might have some beer as well or something. I don't know, but this is liquid gold and we're just giving it out to our neighbors in downtown because there's the big event down here. Just imagine with me. It's Friday, so then Sunday comes, we all show up to church. Oh my gosh, we gave out so many bottles of water. I can't wait to see how many people are gonna be sitting in these pews, right? And then two people show up. You're kidding me. We gave out 100 water bottles and two people pay us back with their presence at our service? Ah. Right? Friends, Jesus is saying, look, when you serve your downtown neighbors or when you serve your kids, don't do it to gain a name for yourselves, to make yourselves great. Because, by the way, kids don't even know, like this kid that he brought in the middle of the group, you think kids even know what power plays are all about? They could care less. They're not going to pay you back. They're going to eat the candy that you gave them and then ask you for, can I have another piece of candy or whatever? Can I have two water bottles? Yes, you may. You may. They're not going to pay us back. And we're not going to stand there waiting for them to pay us back. We're going to say, in Jesus' name, enjoy this liquid gold on a 90-degree day. If they come looking for Jesus, then God bless them and thank you, Jesus. Jesus is saying here, ambition is when you serve those who receive and then give nothing back and can't give anything back to stroke your ego. Wonderful, you've received me then, he says, and you've received my Father. That's the content of true ambition. Dr. Kent Brantley in Liberia came back to the States, and at the end of his ordeal, he said this, I finally cried for the first time when I saw my family members through a window and I spoke to them over the, the intercom. I had not been sure I would ever see them again. And when I finally recovered, the nurses excitedly helped me leave the isolation room and I held my wife in my arms for the first time in over a month. He says, even when I was facing death, I remained full of faith. I didn't want to be faithful to God all the way up to serving in Liberia for 10 months only to give up at the end because I was sick. Contrary to the commentator, Dr. Brantley's Christian ambition was not idiocy. It was in lock step with Dr. Brantley's God, the God of the scriptures who left heaven to teach Dr. Brantley what ambition really looks like. Using words from Dr. Brantley that we quoted earlier, I'll say it this way. God came in Jesus, not through a protective suit, without a protective suit, taking our form to speak to us, to call us by name, 
to touch us in the midst of our sin sickness. Why? Because God wanted us to know that we were valuable to him, that we were loved by him, and that he was here, right here, to serve us. This is Christian ambition. Aren't you thankful that Jesus was ambitious for you and for your soul? Amen.